Oasis. Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this beautiful world. My name is Scott Allen, and I am the host of Phronesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. I am an Associate Professor of Management at John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio, USA. I'm an author, an entrepreneur, a speaker, a nonprofit founder, and the host of two podcasts. I'm also a husband and dad of three. You just heard from Kate, my daughter, who wrote and performed the Phronesis intro. Phronesis offers a smart, fast-paced discussion on all things leadership. My guests are scholars and practitioners, and we cover timely, relevant topics and incorporate practical tips designed to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. Now, I am proud to share that Phronesis is the official podcast of the International Leadership Association, an association that is near and dear to my heart. ILA brings together leaders and those who teach, study, and develop leadership, advancing leadership knowledge and practice for a better world. Learn more at ilaglobalnetwork.org. If you like what we're up to, please click subscribe so you can stay up to date as we release new episodes each week. You can also share what we're up to with others. And now, today's show. Good day, everybody. Welcome to Phronesis. Today, I'm honored to have Dr. Shelley Spiller, and she is a professor at University of Waikato's Management School and Associate Dean Mari. She has a passion for leadership, Mari, and indigenous business and governance, wisdom, diversity, inclusion, and belonging, and sustainable business. Uh, she is a committed advocate for Māori leadership, management, governance, and business development. And her latest book, it has practical wisdom in the title, and that's in the title of my podcast, Shelley. So I'm excited, and it's Practical Wisdom, Leadership and Culture, Indigenous, Asian, and Middle Eastern Perspectives. Now, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. What what would you like to share with listeners about you before we begin? And then we can start our our topic for the day. Thank you. Well, first of all, I'd really like to start with a Māori greeting to all the listeners. So, kia ora koutou, kei te mihi mahana kia koutou, e ngā mana, e ngā reo, e ngā hau e whā, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. What that means is warm greetings, everyone, from the, the Pacific. And I'm acknowledging all the mana, all the dignity, all the authority, all the languages and the people of the four winds that have gathered here to listen to this podcast, Scott. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. Well, and, and tell listeners about you. What should we know that wasn't in the little brief bio that I, I read? Right. Well, I am... Professor of Leadership at the University of Waikato in Hamilton, New Zealand. Um, I have what you would describe as bicultural heritage. So on my mother's side, I'm Indigenous Māori. So I come from a long line of very staunch um, Māori warrior woman. And on the other side, I come from British heritage through my father. So uh, I guess it's very much shaped and informed my work um, in leadership and that passion and that advocacy that you mentioned. Um, in particular, you know, I've really had to navigate those worldviews as they've often collided in the household and in myself. And my 
I guess my work has been one of in coming to a deeper understanding of cultures, worldviews, and um, how we can move forward from that place. So it's a working at the interface, we would call it. Shelley, would you talk a little bit about that? Talk a little bit about some of those uh, interfaces that you've had to, in some cases, maybe reconcile. Maybe they haven't been reconciled. But what are some of those interfaces? Well, I think but from I mean, the Māori side for me is the only, um, I guess, part that I've really known because my British grandparents never made it to New Zealand and my Irish grandfather passed away before I got to know him. So I've been very deeply steeped in the Māori worldview and that for me is a worldview that's built on relationships, um, it's very warm, it's very culturally grounded and it's very different to the wider Western perspective. So how that shows up in, in my own life as I you know, really wanted to go out and see the world as, as most Kiwis do, we, you know, we really want to have our big OE, our overseas experience and got out and I had my first experience was as a AFS or American field scholar in Thailand for one year and that really opened up new perspectives for me and from there I eventually made my way back to New Zealand after spending some 15 years in Australia, did a master's in international relations, a PhD in Māori business and then I went to Harvard and that was a really, that was a turning point for me Scott because at Harvard I met um, the people who are working on the Native American Indian, uh, was it Harvard Project on Native American Economic Development, under, under the guidance of Professor Joe Colt and Stephen Cornell. And then I really got to see what was happening in Indian country, the incredible things that were taking place, and I brought that knowledge back and into my work. Well, talk about your work, because it's extensive. It's prolific. So what are some themes that have emerged from that work that you would love to share with listeners? What what should we know about that stream of research? Right. Well, I'm very focused on uh, wellbeing economies. So in New Zealand, we um, our Treasury, our Reserve Bank, is committed to um, a wellbeing economy. So around the idea that GDP is such an insufficient way of measuring the health of an economy. And that aligns really beautifully with Māori ideas around a well-being economy, which has been a steadfast view of how Indigenous peoples view um, prosperity. And it really means, it taps into the idea that I think one of the, the key things that travels across Indigenous cultures is this idea of sacred kinship with all of creation. That when, for in, for example, in Māori worldview, we have a word called whakapapa, which means genealogy, and we trace our genealogy right back to a single point of origin, a coalescence point, as it were, where we are, we see ourselves as literally related to all of creation, to rocks, trees, um, you know, sentiency, and everything. And when you're moving from that, what I would call a root ontology, it really changes the way that we look at our role as stewards in this world. Yes. It totally reframes it. It, do, it totally reframes it. So whereas, say, perhaps the Western culture is needing to rehabilitate um, in some way because of the Cartesian split, industrialization, globalization, 
in spite of the incredible disruptions of colonization on many indigenous peoples, they've retained this continuity um, of belief through their cultural transmissions, through ceremony, ritual, that's been passed from one generation to the next. So there's this continuity of being in the world in which we are custodians of, you know, of the planet. And that really changes the way leadership is enacted, governance is carried out. And I'm really, you know, really excited by what happens um, in spite of all the disruptions that go on. We see people in all kinds of situations taking into consideration the well-being of the environment, the well-being of communities, their spiritual well-being is really important, um, as well as economic growth and development. And sometimes they have to make conscious compromises, but they do that consciously. It's not rampant, unfettered growth. The, the whole notion of a custodian, again, just reframes our time, our work, our purpose versus, I think, what what at times we can default into, which is consumer. I take, I take, I take, <laughs> and I consume. And it's not that, cons- that mindset of a custodian. Again, it just, it broadens the perspective. It, it definitely broadens it. And it very much, it's an intergenerational view as well. So it isn't just about, you know, the now generation or us and our comfort and our lifestyle. Of course, we all want comfortable lifestyles, but from an Indigenous point of view, you'll see these communities planning some 500 years out. You know, so they have these intergenerational plans because it's really important that as ancestors of tomorrow, that we're handing over, you know, assets. And I use that word in terms of, you know, the land, the environment community, the social fabric, that everything is handed over in a better shape than when we received it. So our task as leaders, as people in governance or whatever we're doing, our task is to make sure the next generation is better than us. And we look to the past generations for guidance because the kinds of values that have been passed down through the generations are values that teach us how to be in intimacy with the world, how to be in really good relationship with the world. So it's not just like a nostalgic retreat to the past. This is a living, dynamic, adaptive system, what I call a consciously adaptive system. What are some of the, Shelley, what are some of the interfaces, similarities between conceptions of leadership and maybe, you know, the Western kind of notion of what a leader is and some of the indigenous uh, perspectives on the topic of leadership are there similarities in some cases and then maybe what are some of the some of the i mean we've talked about potentially some of the differences a wider perspective it's not simply the bottom line it's long term and intergenerational it's not next quarter <laughs> and of course you'll see many you know western businesses with that mindset as well you know search economy and sustainable business where they are looking um, for much longer term views intergenerationally themselves. They're looking to create multi-dimensional well-being, not simply chasing a profit. Uh, there's some connectedness, I guess, around, you know, when you look at stakeholder theory, but the difference perhaps being that indigenous communities have stakeholders in perpetuity. So there's no free entry and exit of stakeholders. So that's one kind of difference. Um, 
I guess in terms of leadership theory, we might say that relational, collective, shared, distributed leadership, there is a resonance there with Indigenous approaches to leadership. But I ardently believe we cannot shoehorn Indigenous leadership theory into Western theories. The best that Western theories can do is illuminate some aspect of Indigenous leadership. Because Indigenous leadership is a whole belief system, a whole philosophy, ontology, and it's a way of, of life. So it can't really be fragmented and um, understood through the lens of Western theory. So, um, you know, we try to use Western theory around leadership just to illuminate aspects of what's going on um, in the Indigenous world. Uh, what are some of the other tensions? You know, sometimes the differences aren't massive. They're just a question of emphasis. Um, but in our classes with Māori and other Indigenous students, we really help them navigate those tensions at that interface in between because they... They're not living in silos. They have to navigate different worldviews. Sometimes it's easier to be either or, not both and. So the real challenge is how do we move forward in the complexities, the nuance, the ambiguities, the tensions of that, that interface and make wise decisions. How do you think about that, moving forward through those tensions? In your experience, what has been the best approach in navigating those? Sometimes it's 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 out and out activism. <laughs> okay, okay, good. So, you know, I mean, one thing about I really, the courage and resilience that, you know, has kept Indigenous ways of being, livelihoods, outlooks going is just the sense of we will not be crushed. And in spite of huge adversities, you'll see these communities, you know, staying steadfast. But to do that, they really have had to step up and speak out and really take action. So in America, we've got the NDN Collective. Over here, um, a, a kind of an international case study was when the Wanganui River was given legal personhood. Now, that has happened through Indigenous leadership from one generation to the next battling in, in the courtrooms to ensure that the river was seen as a living entity, an indivisible living entity that no one can own and that the local Māori are custodians and they have a deep relationship with that river. So all of these things come about because of, um, yes, dialogue is a part of that, Scott, but it's, it really has required resistance and activism as well. You know, And we wrote a paper that was published in Human Relations last year, we called it Paradigm Warriors. And we go right back to the the roots of Māori, in this case, as Paradigm Warriors, who, you know, who really step forward and are prepared to overturn the status quo in service of a better world and a better life. And that takes courage and it takes humility and it takes intergenerational belief. Well, it, it, yes. I mean, I'm sure sometimes it takes legal action. In some cases, it takes activism. And I mean, it's probably across the board as to how we facilitate change and how we how we facilitate change. I mean, it's incredibly difficult work. Yeah, I'm standing up soon. There's another great example of you know people coalescing around the you know the Dakota pipeline and wanting to keep 
community safe but also the environment protected and there was just such a gathering of indigenous people and allies from all walks of life coming together to support um, Standing Rock Sioux in their endeavor. Well, I think I, I watched a documentary over the weekend which was called LFG and I can't say what that stands for because there's a swear word in there. And but it's about the US women's soccer team that really to advance their notion of equal pay had to sue US soccer because they weren't stepping up and they weren't doing what was right and providing equal equal pay for equal work. So yes, I mean, it, there's so many different levers from which to kind of choose as far as how to facilitate change. But you're right, activism and the danger and the the struggle and the persistence, even in this one simple documentary, or I, walked in, I watched another documentary over the weekend about the civil rights movement in the United States. There's fear, there's, there's violence, there's so much embedded in shifting the culture and doing what's right, unfortunately, right? Yes, we had a special issue in leadership that came out earlier this year, and it was on race and leadership. And in one of those papers, we explored the idea of silence as well, all the different forms of silence around these really tricky topics. They're tough topics to talk about sometimes. And because they're so um, difficult and fraught, people you can feel uncomfortable very quickly. And so they, they keep silent about it, not because you know they're filled with loathing or hate, but they it's just too uncomfortable to talk about. They don't feel safe. They're worried about saying the wrong thing. So I really encourage people to, you know, to become allies, to learn more, to connect, to watch those documentaries and, you know, to be willing to be opened up and go on a journey of discovery to learn more about Indigenous leadership, um, in particular race and leadership. And in that journey of discovery, it may not be comfortable and it may require some kind of fragmenting. I love that word discover because to discover means to discover to break up to fragment in some way but as Lena Cohen said you know that's how the light gets in and that's how we get gain new perspective it is by being willing to get uncomfortable to learn and break up and open up our worldview so what are some other I, I love how you framed I'm kind of going backwards a little bit in our conversation but I loved how you framed that you know you can't even really separate leadership from the whole would you talk a little bit more about the whole? What are some ways of being in the whole? Does that make sense, my question? Yes, well, <laughs> yeah. I think it does. <laughs> yes, well, Māori, you know, a Māori relational approach is about holism. Um, in a way, I use this word sphere intelligence. Sphere intelligence um, includes our interiority, our spiritual well-being, um, the, you know, our relationships with the world, um, with all of creation, and we're trying to really look at all elements of the situation. So it's kind of, you know, it's sort of taking creative intelligence, um, our intuition, reading the signs in the environment and in people, as well as our rational logic, of course. But we're not getting stuck in those corridors of rational logic, you know, straight jacket into having to make decisions based on what spreadsheets tell us or, you know, just a very um, limited aspect of our intelligence. 
So we, I make the difference between um, sphere intelligence and then square intelligence. Square intelligence being those, all those cells and spreadsheets, that rationalistic logic that can really dictate our path, instead of stepping back, pausing, and just having that time to reflect and look around and tap into um, the wisdom within us as well. So I think, you know, we can get really caught up sometimes in leadership roles in that square world. And the invitation of Indigenous holistic thinking is to enter a spherical world that's more rounded, where we show up as whole people. And I guess it is that world of both and. It's more interwoven, relational. It's about the group relationships, group harmony, group harmony and group accomplishments, process orientation. And I guess if you contrast that to sometimes the Western world view, and I, and I don't like generalising because it's unfair, because you know, so many people, colleagues, especially at, you know, in the leadership space, um, you know, they're not entirely individualistic. But if we, we were just for a moment say, well, the Western world has really uplifted the idea of the individual, the self, and you know, the analysis of parts and reductionism, personal achievement can be quite linear sometimes. You know, this is this is where we're going to go and you know, goal conquering, deadline orientation. So I think those are some of the the ways in which we try and navigate. And I call we use this word ambicultural, which is taking the strengths of all and you know, really trying to be ambidextrous and in the way that we want to move in the world and use the strengths of all cultures to make you know, to make really wise decisions in service of the future, the ecology and communities. Beautifully said. You answered. <laughs> that was beautifully said. Would you talk a little bit about New Zealand obviously receives a lot of press across the world in, in recent months, over the last 18 months, because of how how it reacted to COVID-19 and, you know, as a leadership scholar, and again, you have the, these multi, these many interfaces in different communities and different perspectives, whether that's higher education. And how did you experience, how did you experience that from a, from a leadership standpoint? Did you feel like that it was a, a leadership win for uh, Jacinda Ardern? Or did you feel that it was, uh, how did you experience it? I mean, what was your lived experience of that 16, 18 months? And I'm sure we're still, obviously, we're still immersed in it on some level. Yes, it's still unfolding. And of course, our borders are, you know, quite shut. And only a, a relatively small portion of the um, populations being vaccinated, I think 500,000 as we speak. Well, I do feel that my sense of Jacinda's leadership was really appropriate and relevant right throughout. Right from the beginning, she was, she was decisive. Um, she also really made it clear that this was a collective endeavour. She used terms like team of five million. You know, it was very distributed in the sense that everyone took it felt like everyone was taking personal responsibility and if they weren't, they were quickly outed. So that, um, yes, this language of a team of five million came through to, you know, to be kind to each other was very much a word that Jacinda was using last year to be kind, to be safe. So I think that resonated and rippled right throughout the New Zealand population. Standing beside her was Dr. Ashley Bloomfield, so Fauci's counterpart, I guess, in, in New Zealand. 
And they did a survey on his leadership style and 78% of respondents said that his style was very humble, clear, unambiguous. And so I feel too that he embodied a really important style of leadership around um, maybe that's his scientific, you know, his medical training, but he was very, had strong composure and this humbleness that I think Kiwis really appreciate. Uh, and we also saw Māori leaders, some of them stepped up and they put up roadblocks to stop people entering into different regions. And that was, you know, controversial because some people said, you can't, you can't um, breach my rights by putting up a roadblock. But they did. And I think this comes back to this idea of courage again. And, I, you know, they were doing that to protect vulnerable populations inside these territories, not just Māori, but all people, because... In some of these regions, you know, the the health is poorer than in others. So, you know, they just took decisive action too. So I think there's so many examples of leadership across the country, both small and big, that collectively it, it felt like a very safe place to be. Well, Brad, Brad Jackson, he kind of he kind of described it as you know, people rowing in the same direction. And of course there were some people who were not. <laughs> But if you have enough rowing in the same direction, then, um, you know, and we had a wonderful conversation about place. I mean, he's so focused on some of that work around place. And I've even heard some of that in, in how you've spoken today, that place is critical and it's important and it's uh, essential to be cognizant of. Um, I, I loved, I loved, and I'd never thought of a river Explain that again. It was a river that was given rights. It was a river river that was seen as an individual. I love that. Yeah, it was given legal personhood. So it's got equal rights akin to a person. It's a phenomenal precedent. And uh, you know, so it's it's seen as a an indivisible and living whole. It's about two hundred and ninety kilometers long. And its its own journey has been um, a troubled one as well as a river. You know, it's been partitioned off, it's been sold, it's had the gravel extraction, it's had, you know, chemicals pouring into it, it's been polluted. Its life force, what we call the Modi, the life force of that river, and it was treated very cruelly. And so for this river itself to be set free from the dominion of industrialization uh, as well as, you know, we're not just looking at it in terms of um, people's right to be custodians of that river. We're looking at it in terms of that river's right to be well. And I think it's, um, you know, it's, it's a courtroom battle that's been happening since the 1800s. But one generation of Māori leaders after the next took up that baton and carried on the fight so that the river, you know, could return to wellness again, and it's it's Modi return to balance. That's an incredible story. Has that been written about? Has that that story been told? It has been told, and from what I understand, India and Bangladesh have now started endowing rivers with legal rights, with with legal personhood as well. And you know, imagine if if that was amplified all around the world and our waterways. You know, were brought to well-being again, so that they, you know, they could be the living entities that they are. And this comes back to, you know, to place that we really care about 
our place and we care about not just the tangible aspects of it but the intangible, the spiritual well-being, the life force of our places that we live in, um, it really changes the relationship. You know, it's not just a it's not just a stakeholder, you know, it, it's this idea of co-evolution that humans and place are co-evolving together in symbiotic relationships. Yes, and if the humans have that broader perspective of what that means, that can be incredibly powerful. Uh, and unfortunately... Well, it is, because it comes back to our deep sense of belonging, you know, to belonging not only to our families, our friends, our communities, but belonging to place and belonging to the world, to the planet as well. So it really deepens this idea of what it means to belong. And in some recent research, I've been looking um, at uh, Rovelli's work on quantum physics, and he talks about relational quantum and the idea that nothing exists outside of relationship. That's kind of an indigenous way of looking at things, <laughs> you know, that we self-actualize in relationship. So we would have thought, I mean, in a way, you know, these conversations that um, people like Rovelli are having around relational quantum is really interesting because it's sort of like a form of a root ontology, I would call it, that Indigenous peoples, um, they know that interconnectedness, interdependency, um, this relational aspect. And when you've got science saying, oh, you know, nothing exists outside of relationships. There you go. <laughs> right? Well, you said recent. What else have you been thinking about recently or writing about recently? What's been on your on your radar? Following this thread, I guess, of consciousness. So I am consciousness and leadership. They had a special issue on you know critical views of authentic leadership. And I wrote a short piece, a thought piece for that. And really looked at this idea of indigenous I am consciousness. So moving from the authentic self and kind of critiquing that from the level of when we look at to thine own self be true which came out of Shakespeare, Polonius, self-centeredness, narcissism and then saying well what does it mean from an indigenous perspective to conceive of the self and with this view of I am and that we trace we understand ourselves in relationship to everything around us including ancestral lines including um you know, our whakapapa, as I said, our genealogy. So I think well, to frame it from a Māori perspective, when we introduce ourselves to each other, Scott, we um, we say our pepeha. So we, I would describe myself as, you know, and it's a really short one, and they go on for much longer than that, but it's basically saying, this is my sacred mountain. This is my sacred ocean. This is my sacred river. You will know me through these, through this place, through these places that I belong to that I'm sharing with you right now. And this is this is how we introduce ourselves to each other. We don't just go, "Hi, I'm Shelley, and I'm a professor at the University of Waikato." You know, and name our title. Those are the last things we mention. I wouldn't even mention the title, by the way. I'd, I'd mention my name, but not the title. That's not what's important. Now, what's important is these, you know, this way that I have emerged from place and belong to place and my kin, kinship relations. So this idea of whakapapa is not, it's right across the Indigenous world. But in this particular paper, I also look at ancient Celtic 
poet, Armageddon, and he uh, was a mystic seer on the Milesian fleet as they entered Ireland. And he casts out this poem, and it's the most beautiful poem, which resonates with a Māori perspective very much. And I'll just um, pause and get it. We held a workshop in London some years ago, uh, and we opened up you know, with everybody exploring their pepiha and sharing themselves in this way. And right from the beginning, uh, people were crying. It was right in the heart of an industrial estate in, in the heart of London. We had physicists, Eritreans, we had people from all walks of like Huguenot background. And we just felt like we were in this bubble of time where people were sharing from this really deep place. And some months after that workshop, uh, I received an email from people saying that it was just so special for them and that they, they were chasing their lineage, going off on journeys across you know, the world, really, to discover wow. their roots. Well, even when you introduced yourself, I got goosebumps. I mean, it's just so powerful. It's, it's such a, it's a more holistic, well, it's a sphere. Yeah, and it, it's just one of the most simple things and yet the most profound. And, you know, I hold all kinds of workshops and just taking that time to sit with each other in a circle and hear the story of a person, the, the journey that their ancestors took, the wisdom that's been transmitted, the places that they belong to. And it just, you know, you just start to see a person really differently. It's such a sacred thing to be doing and to be giving it, you know, all that airtime. We had um, some Chinese leaders one year, and we, it was like we call it the dra- the meeting of the dragon and the Tanifa. The Tanifa's you know a Māori way of looking at that. And I remember spending you know we, we were planning this encounter between Māori leaders, Chinese leaders, and it was for a whole day. And everyone was sitting in a circle in the boardroom, kind of sitting low. And the whole day was taken up by introductions and just getting to know each other, hearing each other's background stories. And that relationship building is very common across Indigenous as well as many Asian societies and cultures, is taking that time to really establish trust and understand values. So shall I read out this poem? So it's an invocation by the legendary poet Seer, Armagen, and it was spoken sometime between 400 and 700 BC when he first set foot upon Ireland as part of the Milesian fleet. So it's been called by some as the first Irish poem. I am wind on sea. I am wave upon land. I am ocean roar. I am stag of seven fights. I am hawk on cliff. I am teardrop of the sun. I am fairest of plants. I am boar for valour. I am salmon in a pool. I am lake on plain. And when I first read that poem, like every part of me just started to kind of tingle because I recognised this ancient way of expressing who we are in this world and that sense of belonging and relationship and respect and mutuality coming through in, in him. And of course, in the same paper, I look at you know, an African view of this as well. And, and you'll see across all these different cultures this extraordinary way of invoking ourselves and, and consciousness. And I think it's really you know, exciting. It's not the easiest route. 
I think it, as I say in the article, it requires leaders to go beyond the ruts of the daily grind and the grooves of ourself and hold a more expansive, healing, connective vision for humanity. Because more than ever, you know, we really need leaders who are willing to take up this bigger, larger, more holistic way of leading and truly commit to their own journey in that process. There's just so much knowledge and wisdom. I published an episode on Plato and, and Aristotle and and Machiavelli uh, three or four weeks ago. And it was a really fun conversation because that's one, it's a source of knowledge, right? But I think we are missing out on incredible wealths of perspectives and important, important voices that are critical to our future and mindsets and ways of thinking. Again, the, the notion of the sphere, it's expansive, it's holistic, it's not one-dimensional. And I think sometimes in, in the West, our thinking can be very one-dimensional. What is the bottom line? Well, they were a great leader because they produced shareholder value. And okay, one dimension, but what is that doing to that river, to your point? I live in a community, Cleveland, Ohio, where our river was on fire a few times. And that's what we were producing. I just really, really appreciate your perspective. And I, you know, I'm a big believer that we all, we all have this, this DNA throbbing in our veins and that it's, for many people, it may be a great returning. But I do sense a huge longing around the world for things to be different and to get out of that trap, I guess. And, yeah, to talk about leadership, you know, in terms of shareholder value, of course, there are people that can be really successful in leadership when um, for a certain period of time. But what we often see is that when those leaders leave those organisations, everything can start to fray and fall apart. So from a, an Indigenous perspective, that is not successful leadership. Successful leadership is, you know, success is succession when you're making the next generation, generation of leaders better than oneself and we're really taking care of our environment, our people, well-being at all levels. That is successful leadership. So we do need to look at our measures of, you know, what success looks like in that bottom line, which is still very dominant, you know, <laughs> and, and GDP is still very dominant. So, you know, we had, you know, take my hat off to New Zealand government for, you know, moving towards being a well-being economy and reframing, you know, moving from pure um, wealth, as in W-E-A-L-T-H, to wealth, W-E-L-T-H, which is an old English word for well-being, you know, and it's really saying we are committed to the well-being of our people and our environment. Shelley, what have you been listening to or streaming or reading it may have something to do with what we've been discussing. It may have nothing to do with what we've been discussing. But what have you been consuming that's caught your eye as of late? Um, Carlo Rivelli's latest book came out just recently, and I can't for a second say I understand it. Um, but there's all these these bits that I feel I resonate with. But my my reading is is really quite wide. Um, I'll look at my Kindle and I can tell you exactly what I've been reading. <laughs> I just read a fantastic book by Kazuo Ishiguro and it's Clara and the Sun, and I really, really enjoyed that. And then following on from that, um, Matt Haig, The Midlight, Midnight Library. So because at night time, you know, I, I yeah, try and Yeah, my time. wife just finished that book. She loved it. It's really cool. It fitted so beautifully to the whole quantum thing too. So I've been reading uh, Something Deeply Hidden, 
by Sean Carroll, which is kind of the many worlds theory of of uh, quantum. And, and again, I don't understand half of it, <laughs> but I too have a fascination. I wish, I wish, I wish I would have paid more attention. It happened when Pythagorean's theorem was introduced for me and numbers became letters. And then all of a sudden the guy upstairs just shut down. And I wish that wouldn't have happened because I have so much love and, and appreciation for physics and quantum mechanics. And I want to learn it. I want, I'm, I'm not there yet. Yeah, I'm definitely not there. But I love this idea of ancient cosmologies. And, and I think for me, that's where um, what Carla Ravelli and his book was called Helga Land. And, and I look at Sean's work is this idea that, you know, of relationships and when we look at the Dogon priests of Mali, the Babylonians, the ancient Egyptians, Maori, there's this kind of sense that there's a parent cosmology that's been laid down and it's travelled through time alongside us and and it hasn't been entirely ruptured or forgotten. And so I'm really interested in some of these ancient notions like for in Māori we have this te kore kore which is a void and it's a void of potential from which all things emerge so coming back to leadership you know we have um ite kore kite kite ao marama from the void into the night and into the world of light so the task for leadership is to release more light into the world into te ao marama the world in which we inhabit but to do that we're reaching into te kore that void and when you start to look at quantum and you've got plenitude, possibilities, emptiness, voids, infinite you know, sort of possibilities, and then you're like, wow, this is really cool. I don't understand it, but it's cool. Yeah. But you know what? That's how all of us continue to learn, grow, develop, and stretch ourselves because I love being in conversations where I understand half of what's being said. And then maybe next time I understand 55%. <laughs> I just kind of stick at it. And it's a scholarly inquiry, isn't it? It's a, it's a world of curiosity and inquiry and being stretched. And I don't know about you, Scott, but you know, I think one of our occupational hazards is, is um, you know, our brains just so busy, busy, busy. <laughs> so I do try to read things that don't trigger my mind in the evening so much, just more like, kind of gentle and less less active and of course getting out into the world and walking and you know letting nature be the healer and the recalibrator is absolutely vital to my world so well said well Shelley it's been so wonderful meeting you today thank you very very much for joining me and and helping me better understand your work I, I can't wait to explore this topic. How can people learn more? I guess I have a website, ShellySpiller.com, so they could just check that out. There's bits and pieces floating around on there. I'll need to update it now, though. <laughs> oh, and there's a TED Talk on wayfinding leadership that I did. So wayfinding leadership draws on the experience of Polynesian navigators, the oceanic navigators, who journey without using any instruments, and they read the signs in the world around them. And that's, that's very popular. You know, this, we did a book. I just have so many organizations wanting wayfinding leadership, both here, here in New Zealand and also all around the world. I really love the fact that you can be in Cleveland, Ohio, and I can be here and we can do, it feels very close and connected. And I really appreciate um, the conversation. And I really love the fact that we actually, it's very emergent and we didn't actually have a plan. So that's uh, it's brought forward things that I feel needed. So thanks. 
Really enjoyed my conversation with Shelly. There's a couple things that really stood out. Actually, there's many. <laughs> I'm just going to highlight a few of those here. You know, I, I think it's uh, her perspective, her worldview. It is uh, pretty incredible. And I've listened to this episode three, four times at this point, and new concepts, thoughts, ideas continue to emerge. And so a couple quotes that just stood out for me, I'm sure many stood out for you. Here's one. It comes back to our deep sense of belonging, to belonging not only to our families, our friends, our communities, but belonging to place and belonging to the world, to the planet. It really deepens this idea of what it means to belong. Powerful, just absolutely incredible. There's another conversation where Shelley really explores sphere intelligence versus square intelligence. She said, so I make the difference between sphere intelligence and square intelligence. In square intelligence, being cells, spreadsheets, rationalistic, logic, using these elements to dictate your path, instead of stepping back, pausing, just having that time to reflect, look around, and tap into the wisdom within us as well. Again, just incredibly powerful. There's so many different ways that we could reflect upon and highlight elements from this episode. I, I hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Shelly. I'm excited to have her back to talk a little more about wayfinding leadership, to learn more of her thinking in that space. I'm going to put the link to her TED Talk on the topic so that you can begin to explore that. But again, as I said in the episode, I think there's this whole other dimension, this whole other paradigm, this whole other view of the world that has just incredible value that many cultures in my mind are missing. And I think that can be tragic. I think that can be toxic. I think it can be damaging if we aren't paying attention to the sphere and only the squares. Be well, everybody. Take care. As always, thank you for listening. You, my friend, have just finished another episode of Phrenesis Practical Wisdom for Leaders. To get in touch with me, visit www.scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I can also be found on Twitter and on LinkedIn. Now, if you have feedback, I would love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening to Phrenesis. If you like Phrenesis, I have a second podcast. It's called the Captovation Podcast. That's with an O, Captovation Podcast, where I speak with experts on the topic of designing and delivering incredible presentations. And now, Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.